This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. Representative Rosemary Lesser was elected to the state legislature in January 2021 after the incumbent Lou Shirtliff passed away. Now she's in her second term, and she's been elected to the leadership in the Democratic caucus. She'll be up for election again in 2024. Before you stepped into representative of District 10, you were an OBGYN, is that right? Yes. And did you specialize like in, I don't know, fertility, mothers? Is there like a, a word for specializing in? Well, in within my practice, I actually did a whole range of women's health care from high-risk pregnancies to infertility to menopausal women bladder problems. So that was the exciting thing about the job I did is that I took care of people from of all age groups, uh, but all women. Were you in the military before that? I was. I was. I was in the Air Force for 15 years. And I grew up in the Air Force also. My dad was an Air, uh, Air Force navigator. Oh. And so the Air Force was part of my life for um, more than half of my life. And what did you do in the Air Force? Well, I was an obstetrician gynecologist, and I trained in that, so I was active duty in that field. So some of my active duty time was um, training. I went to the military's medical school. There's only one institution in the United States that trains doctors specifically for the military, and that's where I trained in Bethesda, Maryland. Hmm. And so then are there elements of that beyond just providing obstetrics to active duty people? Is that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, military physicians have to do lots of additional things. And and especially since many of us are um, practicing outside of the United States, we may be in military bases as I was in Germany. But even when I was in Germany, I would go to remote places like the island of Crete or uh, in Turkey on the Syrian border and um, provide a, uh, gynecology care to women active duty um, oh. all over the European theater. You know, one of the things the military always does is planning. We've all seen movies about war games and things like this, but in real life, the military is always doing contingency planning and medical support is a key part of any military operational planning because you've got to figure out how are you going to take care of the individuals who are, you know, doing whatever military mission is ahead. So it's uh, much more involved than what uh, a standard medical school had curriculum-wise. That makes sense. It's got to be part of whatever plan there is. It has to be part of, you know, kind of what the military does. And, you know, much of it involved... Um, adapting to differing situations, whether it be, um, you know, in hostile political environments or hostile climate environments, you had to come with your whole kit pretty much ready to go. Then once you leave the military, do you open your own practice kind of right away? How does that- I joined the Ogden Women's Clinic, and that group was uh, uh, all OBGYN physicians. There were six or seven of us. And this group had been around for, oh golly, at least 30 or 40 years in Ogden. It was, uh, uh, so it was really exciting to join that group okay. in 92 when I came to Utah. Okay. Because I've heard, I don't know who, I feel like I've heard people say you've delivered like 20,000 babies in the Well, it's probably so. not that many, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, at least at least 6,000 in Utah. Wow. At least. Wow, that's a lot. Yep. It is a lot, and it's and it's wonderful to meet them and see their moms again. Uh, even in my most recent campaign, it was so great when I would knock on the door and people would open it, and um, you know, instead of talking politics, there were hugs of reunification of people I hadn't seen for a decade. So yeah. uh, that was a great part of the campaign process. <laughs> Yeah, and so uh, you get involved in politics in late 2020. Is that kind of when you first got involved in politics? Well, um, I guess being involved is something that is, uh, I think it's always a continuum for most people. 
Um, for me, I was uh, very involved in uh, Pete Buttigieg's campaign, mm. and I was in a group called the Barnstormers, and we went and canvassed for Pete in Iowa and in New Hampshire and in Nevada, those early swing states. And here in Utah, I was involved in Utah's Pete Buttigieg uh, campaign, and in fact, we shepherded one of the biggest rallies that Pete ever had uh, of any um, in any state in the country when we had almost 4,000 people standing in the freezing cold to hear Pete speak in Salt Lake City. Wow, that's so, cool. Yeah, so it was exciting. And that's where I met Lou Shirtliff, is that one of the things that I had done is I would host people who were just interested in watching the um, Democratic primary debates. And as you remember, there were a lot of people. They even had divide. There were so many, they had to divide them up on two nights. Mm -hmm. And so we would have people over to our home, and we would watch it. Some people supported Pete. Some people were Bernie supporters. Some people were Amy supporters. But we would all sit and talk about what resonated with us. And mm. so that was kind of the beginning of my local uh, political organizing efforts, never imagining that it would be me who would be ultimately be the elected official. Yeah. Yeah, now that I think about it, I think I went to one of your... Did you, didn't you do one in Shadow Valley at the yes. park? A debate yes. watch party? Yeah, I remember that one. It was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, and so then, so then, from how I understand the timeline, Lou Shirtliff is elected to District 10 in November 2020 to start a term in January, well, February? January. January 2021. Right. And then she, she passed away in December, is that right? Right, she did. And so then the party's scrambling to, to find a new nominee. And so can you just kind of talk about, like, how you experienced all of that? Well, um, sadly, um, I uh, got the call the night that Lou passed away because everyone recognized that the timeline was going to be pretty short if House District 10 was going to have representation. And the way the process works is that in these situations where representatives uh, pass away or step down from their position electively, um, the state delegates from that district are tasked with the responsibility of electing a replacement. And so the state delegates for That's House right. District 10 um, elected me. And we're talking like 200 people, right? Something like that? Oh, less than that. Yeah. I think it was, I think, maybe 50 oh, yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Because it's only just House District 10. And so your phone starts ringing that day and probably has not stopped ringing since. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So you get encouraged to put your name forward for mm -hmm. this seat. There were, what, maybe like eight candidates? There were. That? Well, originally there were 20, which wow. only goes to show you that people are interested in this process. And there was some winnowing that had occurred at the lieutenant governor's office because some actually didn't live in House District 10, mm. and which, you know, I appreciate that, <laughs> you know, district boundaries are, are not particularly well known to most people, but yeah. it went down to eight individuals who oh, were okay. running. And, um, you know, I have to say, having many conversations with those eight individuals, or the seven others, um, both before the election and in the subsequent years since then, I think any one of those folks would have served our district very, very well. Mm. But so what is that campaigning process like? You basically have an electorate of 50 people and you're... And just talking to each of them? you're just talking to each of them wow. and and trying to persuade them. There was also a debate that um, Utah Democratic Party conducted so that those um, delegates could have a chance to hear each of the eight of us respond to questions about, you know, what our our beliefs were and how we would approach certain situations and things like that. Mm. And uh, I've, I've actually gone back and, and watched that um, 
after the fact and realized how much I didn't know at that time. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> because, you know, you know it, it's, it's hard to know what that job actually entails uh. until you get into it. And um, having said that, um, that, I believe, gave me a significant advantage come 2022 because by that time, I clearly knew what the job entailed. Um, and so I could campaign having, um, although I had merely received the support of the Democratic delegates in um, 2021, just before the 2021 session began, when the 2022 campaign came along, I could say, this is what I have done. This is what I have learned. This is who I am, um, with much more authority than if I had just entered the 2022 race with no experience at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, because, I mean, what is that time? We're talking like maybe a month between when Lou passes away and, and the seat needs oh, to be Oh, it was, it was less than that. In fact, the election to um, the House District 10 seat came three days before the um, seating of... Uh, wow. So on Tuesday, I show up at the Capitol and uh, wow. uh, with my newly purchased blazer <laughs> and uh, was ready to go. And in wow. fact, in fact, it was interesting because the uh, staff director for the Democrats meets me, you know, at the garage to let me in uh, because I hadn't gone through any of the orientation process. And he said, have you been here before? And I said, just for protest rallies. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was about the only time I had ever been at the Capitol was when, you know, there were various organizations that I had supported that were gathering together at the Capitol. So yeah, I've now that. come to appreciate the uh, beauty of the People's House and welcome uh, members of our community down there and many of whom come and sit with me on the floor of the house so you should come join me i really should that sounds so great i would love to um so so you find out on saturday that right. you're elected and then you swear in tuesday right that's incredible right and i have to imagine that so i'm guessing you know, as you were campaigning, you at least met a few of the elected representatives, the Democratic representatives already. Is that right? Yes. Yes. But so did you know anybody else as you're walking in there? No, no, no. They had, you know, there were just rapid fire phone calls coming in after my election. Um, uh -huh. I mean, even even the governor called me uh which I thought was incredibly kind. Uh -huh. I got a uh, text from the new speaker, and so uh, that was really exciting. But there were so many um, new vocabulary words, quite honestly, that were totally foreign to me yeah. um, about the committees. And uh, my committee assignments were basically those that Representative Shirtliff was due to to occupy. So oh. because she was an educator, she was on the Public Education Appropriations Committee. She was also on the Education Committees. Mm -hmm. And so those were the places that I was seated um, early on. And actually, Representative Shirtliff was also on Health and Human Services, which was great because that was an area that I had some expertise. And so it was great because my learning curve involved two areas of state government that are our biggest expenditures in our state. One, public education. So from the beginning, I learned about how public education was funded and all of that. And then by also being seated on the Health and Human Services Committee, that also, social services, is our state's second biggest expenditure. And so in a mere two years, I got a chance to be exposed to, you know, sort of the big items that our state um, 
needs to be looking at how we educate and how we care for the public. Yeah, that's really interesting because I would think because Lou had so much experience in the legislature, she probably was given maybe those more powerful committee assignments and stuff that a new legislator would almost never get the opportunity to experience, right. you know, at the beginning. Right. Wow. Right. Well, one of the really interesting things in the Utah legislature is that um, every single representative sits on a one of six appropriations committees. Mm. So every single person really gets to do deep dives in how the government, the state government spends money in certain sectors, whether it be um, agriculture and natural resources, or education, or social services. So that's really great. Many state legislatures do not do that. They only have, uh, you know, a very small nidus of people who are making financial decisions for the state. And I think Mm. that Utah is really wise in taking this whole group of citizen legislators and putting us together bringing our areas of knowledge from the past for the benefit of Utahs. So I like that idea. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know we did that. That's cool. I didn't know that either. (laughs) (laughs) And so then are you like, did you find yourself trying to find ways into healthcare related meetings or anything like that? Oh, yes. I, 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 found myself in the middle of healthcare related meetings almost immediately uh-huh. because well first of all I was on health and human services also um, Governor Cox had some initiatives like the one Utah health project trying to decrease health care costs and many times the media would come to me as kind of the go-to person to talk about health-related issues Mm. um, from my past experience as a physician. There are um, four physicians in the legislature currently, Mm. um, and there were four also, but I'm the only Democratic um, physician in the House of Representatives. We also have a a Democratic senator, um, Senator Jen Plum, who's a pediatrician. So the two of us are the two Democratic uh, physicians, and then there are two Republican representatives who are also physicians. Oh, and a a, um, Republican senator as well. So five Mm. total. Mm. Okay. And did you feel like you had to, like, scramble to study everything about education? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, what's really neat is that there are policy analysts um, in each of the committees. And I have to say that to this day, I will be eternally grateful for the policy analyst who worked me through even understanding these acronyms uh, that are used in, in all government entities and shame on them because they <laughs> they take a take they overtake us sometimes but they helped me through that process and mm. i felt that it was you know just a constant learning process but you know the thing about it is is life is a constant learning process and so i just sort of took this as this is new information but pri- you know, processing new information is something that I used to have to do in my profession all the time. You know, things change in a heartbeat in obstetrics. Mm. And um, similarly, in the military, you're always having to flex to take in new information. Mm. So I didn't really find it all that worrisome about how am I going to learn all this because I, you know, I figured, okay, we're just going to start at the basics, but I will always be thankful for those who guided me in the beginning. Well, and did you feel like people were all looking at you when it comes time to swearing and stuff? Like everybody else, they'd at least had two months to kind of know who they were, but you're this completely unknown. Well, fortunately, we had a group swearing, so that made it <laughs> that made it a little bit easier. Uh-huh. Uh, so all of the new incoming freshmen got sworn in together that Tuesday, that first Tuesday morning. There was also a beautiful ceremony for uh, Representative Shirtliff on mm. that day as well, and mm. her family was there. And so there was, um, uh, it was a very bittersweet day because 
I knew that I was there and had a really important legacy to uphold that uh, Representative Shirtliff had uh, done such a magnificent job representing our area. And um, I knew that it was incumbent upon me to honor her and make her proud. Yeah, I can only imagine that. Well, and I'm a little bit curious about that. I know that Lou had sort of had conversations about her replacement for a while. And, you know, you were a name that she had mentioned. Was that something that you were really aware of? or was No, it all? <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware of that at all. And, you know, I think that the, that's the interesting thing in the political space is that, and we've certainly seen this in organizations like Run Women Run and the Women's Political Leadership Institute, that in general, women need uh, a few more taps on the shoulder to say, uh, you know, will you do this? Will you enter this political space Mm -hmm. that, you know, the bar that women place upon themselves is that we need to have mastery of the subject to jump in. And, um, you know, to me as, and, and I certainly felt that insecurity in the beginning, you know, am I good enough? And at the same time, I looked around and I realized this is a citizen legislature, and I am a citizen. Mm -hmm. And um, when I finally just incorporated that, I stopped worrying about, you know, am I good enough? Because I am a citizen, and I'm just going to bring as many talents as I possibly can, as all of my colleagues are doing. Yeah. Um, at, at this at this table, yeah. but I did not know that. I honestly never knew that about Lou. Now she had come to some of those um, uh, primary wa- uh, watch parties that we used to have at our house, and she spoke to the the group about what it meant to be a representative and why we needed to engage in this process. And I was so inspired by her words at at that time, but I don't. I'd never realized that she realized how much I had incorporated what she was saying, how we needed to be engaged in this. So, yeah. yeah, you uh, didn't realize you should have been taking notes. Well, exactly. But I did, uh, in fact, we did shoot a campaign video for her oh. in the summer of her re-election campaign in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spoke about how much I admired her as my representative and how our interactions as a, you know, from my perspective as a constituent were so important. Um, So I guess that's how our (laughs) alliance came to be. Yeah, right. Do you feel like it took you a while to figure out how things got done in the legislature? Oh, yes. Can you kind of remember what your expectations were before and, and how those sort of got changed? Well, the thing the thing that um, I came to appreciate is that um, building the foundation for getting successful legislation across is is pretty time consuming. You need to get you know everybody on on board if you are proposing something that's transformative. And this was one of the things that I also uh, came to appreciate is that each one of the 104 legislators is not going to be able to have this massive uh, transforming legislature. I mean, I walked in and in my second year, I proposed ending the sales tax on groceries. I mean, a huge initiative. and quite honestly, this will be on the ballot in 2024. So we didn't get it wiped out, which I would have liked, <laughs> um, but it will be put to a vote so that, that um, the people of Utah can express how they feel about, about that. I see. And so is that something that happens through the legislature? You're, you're pushing something within the body and then somehow they say this should go to a ballot to the public? Sometimes, sometimes, and that's what happened in this particular situation. The caveat on this one, however, is, um, and I had uh, opposed the linkage of this, is that the removal of the sales tax on, the state sales tax on groceries 
is linked with a constitutional amendment that um, blends the funding of all of Utah government from all sources. Currently, th with our Utah Constitution, income tax is dedicated to education funding. Now, there are some carve-outs. Um, there was a, a recent amendment that we had voted on in the last five years to allow funding for specific children's services and disability services out of that income tax fund. But the lion's share has been for education. So there will be, I'm sure, some negotiations in this coming session about that and for the education community about guarantees for spending and whether putting all of the revenue in one pot is going to be the best thing for Utah's mm. education system. Mm. And then is it true that you won't necessarily get a lot of say over whether something like that is included in the ballot initiative? Well, unfortunately, I did propose that and was voted down <laughs> that those two were linked. Yeah. I think that people should have been able to vote for one and the other, not put all of those contingent on that. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, that same strategy of linking things that were uh, considerably different is something that I saw even this past session in which the linkage of raising teacher salaries, which we all know needed to happen, was linked with the school voucher program, mm. which ended up taking $42 million out of public education mm. to fund uh, homeschooling and private education. Well, yeah, and even this income tax thing, it's something they've been trying to attach to stuff for a long time, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They've always been trying to free up that money for other spending. Right. Yeah. Right. Despite the fact that actually one of our primary obligations in the state is educating the next generation. Yeah. And that was something that the authors of the Utah Constitution felt so strongly about that being one of the foundational requirements of government that I think even you know, how many years later, we have to remember that that's what our state's founders emphasized. And no matter what happens with whether this money is put in a one pot or two pots, we still need to honor that commitment to educating the next generation mm. in the best way we possibly can. Mm. Mm. And what's it like as you're going to those other 104 members trying to get that buy-in? Like, how much, I mean, how much do they say, oh, you're a Democrat, we don't need to talk to you? How much extra work is there being in the minority? Well, there's a lot of work in, uh, when you're in the minority. Yeah. And uh, the thing that I, I did learn and was uh, very sage advice that was given to me from the very beginning is just get to know people um, on an individual basis, learn about what makes them tick, what what's their background, um, and and I have done that and really thoroughly have learned so much about my colleagues and realized that there are a number of shared values that we have. Mm. And um, I think that the political differences, although they are certainly there, there are plenty of things that bind us together. And the reality is, if you look at bills that are passed in the legislature, many, many, many of them, a great percentage, probably more than 85%, are unanimous mm. and that are good things for the state of Utah. There are certainly different priorities that um, the majority party may have. So I'm not minimizing those differences, but I also want to amplify that there are good things that are being done and being done together. Sometimes, however, one thing that will frustrate us as Democrats is we'll have a great idea. And in sharing that great idea, 
our Republican colleagues may recognize that's a great idea and take that <laughs> <Steal> bill. <it. laughs> and, you know, although, and this has happened to me, but you know, the thing about it is, at the end of the day, to me, what matters the most is what happens for the people of Utah, not whether my name or somebody else's name is attached to that bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to get over being annoyed about uh, a very important piece of legislation that I had being superseded by taken by somebody else. I suppose I should embrace the adage that uh, uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery and run with that. And and that's actually, you know, if the minority party can give the Republicans great ideas, more power to us. <laughs> that's right. So the sales tax change that you proposed sounds pretty major. What made you decide that that was a thing to go after? Well, I think one of the reasons that I... Um, had embraced that was the stories that I would hear from my patients. You know, you know, three decades in Utah talking with families about important things that mattered to them made me realize how many people are really living at the edge and how much, you know, food insecurity was present in our state that we th- believed to be thriving, and yet I recognized from doing volunteer work at the food bank that there's a silent group that is really struggling with this. And the the fact is, is sometimes there are objections uh, by eliminating the tax on groceries and saying, well, we already have SNAP supplements, the food stamp type programs. But yet the thing about it is, is that there are families that are struggling that may not apply for food stamps or have too much pride to do that, or even fixed income seniors who are really struggling with their food budget. So I felt that as we look at tax cuts, which our state has done um, twice in the three years that I've been there, that we also need to look at those uh, taxes that affect uh, people at the lower income threshold even even more so. Mm, yeah, yeah, great point. So those are, you know, born of the stories of the families that I interfaced with through the years. Yeah. And what are some of the other big initiatives that you've been trying to push in the legislature? Well, the one that I shared with you was uh, was accomplished at the, to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage to a year. Um, at Prior to this initiative, when uh, a woman delivered who was on Medicaid, her medical care stopped at the 60-day mark. Uh, after delivery. And we recognize that the postpartum period is much longer than 60 days. And this is where my professional expertise came in, because I would share the stories of people who were, you know, had been diagnosed with diabetes during their pregnancy, and then were going to not have any access to care afterwards. Um, Or women who were still struggling with postpartum depression or high blood pressure. And I remember, you know, like plotting out before that 60-day mark happened, you know, where could someone go for medical care to follow up on this? And especially when it comes to mental health issues, you know, that's something that's even harder because when a person is suffering from depression and has a new baby, trying to seek out new resources is incredibly difficult mm-hmm. compared to continuing with me as their provider to mm-hmm. and who could shepherd them in the right direction. Oh, yeah. and, and when you're struggling with that, you need somebody to shepherd you along and help you get the care you need. Oh, yeah. People don't even maybe recognize they're depressed in that first 60 days. Right, right. Because they're just... Often their family members did, and, <laughs> yeah. and that would be the group that I would also be working with. Mm-hmm. So so that was one of my initiatives. There's a few other things that um, I'm currently working on. 
that are related to uh, health care. I'm related, working on uh, having uh, steroid rescue medicine for kids who have uh, a medical condition where their body doesn't make uh, adrenal steroids. So we're, I'm working with some uh, parents who need that support in the education system. I'm working with lactation consultants who are seeking licensure to be able to provide this really valuable service for women. Mm. And then I'm working in some other areas that may not seem so directly related to health, but are um, sort of what we call, you know, interventions that are upstream, like for instance, um, mathematics literacy in our state um, and bringing Utah up as far as all individuals, both boys and girls, all ethnic groups for better achievement in math. Because as we look forward in our state, you know, math competency is something that more and more career fields are going to be needing. I'm actually currently working with the lead mathematics specialist in the state, and they're working on these uh, curriculum issues. And we're also trying to look at how we assess even more than competency in math. Uh, confidence in math is something that so many students lacking this is and this is across the country we're dealing with this but in utah that having confidence and competency kind of goes hand in hand and feeling like you don't get it or i don't do math mm-hmm. stunts a student's educational opportunities at a very young age i mean in in our state there is a 7 point gap in math competency by third grade between boys and girls. So, you know, looking at how kids learn is an important aspect to what we can do. And we realize that this may involve individual um, coaching, but also bringing into the classroom math specialists and even younger people who are already on a math pathway. Like there's a a group called SheTech in the state, which is high achieving math students and having them share at the lower levels of, um, you know, whether it be individual coaching, uh, bringing them into the classroom. These are all things that I'm working on to try to lift this next generation forward for the inevitable mathematics intensive future that we're going to be facing. Mm. And another thing I was curious about is that also in your first term, redistricting starts happening. Yes, yes. And so like, I'm guessing you didn't get to have much say in it, but like how much of that did you get to observe or was it just kind of a wait and see? Oh, I definitely got to observe a lot because, you know, as you remember, um, the ballot initiative in 2018 provided for an independent redistricting commission. Mm -hmm. And that independent redistricting commission tried to draw lines that kept communities together and uh, did not break them apart. Now, you have to remember, for instance, that the city of Ogden had been divided six ways. And um, so in, in so many ways, that kind of runs counter to keeping communities together to have our biggest city in Weber County be divided up into six ways. And I think that we all know how that story ended. Um a minor improvement. Ogden is now only divided five ways, <laughs> but um, that's still a significant division. And so, as part of that redistricting, I gained several new areas: Washington Terrace and Riverdale, which are now areas that I represent. And my approach to this is that I will represent every single person in my district with enthusiasm 
and advocacy for our region. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be meeting with the Washington Terrace City Council and Mayor on Saturday. They're having their group retreat, and I will be there. And I'm meeting with the Riverdale folks to understand what they're um, working on. And so even though Ogden is and South Ogden are larger components of my district, I believe that I just need to be firm in my commitment to uh, all of these areas. Yeah. Well, that is, that's another thing I've noticed. I mean, being the only Democrat in the county, I think people ask a lot of you. You are just asked to be a lot of places to have opinions about everything going on in Ogden, even right. though you cover maybe a sliver of it. Do you right. cover a sliver of Ogden? Yep, I do. Okay, yeah. I do. And Weber State is in my district, which is great. Right. But but anywhere a Democrat wants representation, right. they're, they're asking right. you to come. Right. Well, when you look at it as the only Democrat outside of Salt Lake County, and you look at the population of our state, there are two million people who live outside of Salt Lake County, and we have one Democratic representative in the Utah legislature. Yeah, That just, I mean, granted, some of those two million are not a voting age, but nonetheless, that does not really fairly represent, you know, the numbers. I mean, when you look at in... Um, when you look at the state's election of president in 2020, just rough math, there were about 500,000 people who voted for um, Joe Biden for presidency and about 800,000 who voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. 500,000 is not a um, inconsequential number of people for whom the uh, congressional gerrymandering meant that there was is no democratic representation in the federal government for the state of Utah. And what does that say to the 500,000 people who cast a vote for Joe Biden that at the federal level we have no representation? Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw, and in fact, this is being um, considered in the courts right now, the city of Salt Lake City is divided four ways in the congressional maps. And none of the independent redistricting commissions had Salt Lake City divided four ways. Mm -hmm. None of them when mm -hmm. it was independently considered. You know, when we think about the principles of democracy, we need to recognize that Utah is a pluralistic state. We have more people now moving into the state of Utah than we do have our population growing by new births. This is brand new in Utah demographic trends. Before, most of Utah's history has been grown by new babies. And for the last two years, it's growing more, not by new babies, but by people coming from outside the state into the state. Mm -hmm. And people need to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so I am their conduit. And when people write to me from all over the state, and people need to have their voices heard, and they come up to me at the Capitol, the People's House, and, um, and those conversations are really important to have a representative who says, I hear you, and I will do everything I can to have your voice amplified. And quite honestly, I have been able to do that. Um, after, in 2022, I was elected to the um, Democratic leadership of our caucus. Oh. And so um, what that has translated to is every week, um, our caucus leadership meets with Governor Cox, Every week, we also meet with the majority leadership. So um, fortunately, and I was also appointed to the Unified Economic uh, Opportunity Commission by Governor Cox in the Women in the Economy. So even though I have this little area of Utah that is represented by a Democrat outside of Salt Lake County, I believe that I am fortunate to be able to have a seat at the table with the governor 
and with the majority caucus so that we can constantly, as Democrats, say, think again. All of us recognize that we have blind spots in our policymaking, and we are stronger when dis, um, different opinions could come together. And I am really happy to be at that seat at the table. Well, and I think that people maybe don't fully appreciate how momentous you winning in 2022 was. I mean, for one, because of what you're saying about you being the only Democrat outside of Salt Lake County to be elected, but also Weber County specifically had gone through almost 10 years of no Democratic representation. And the only way we broke that streak is when Lou Shirtliff, who had held the seat, got right. So right. I was among the people who thought it may be impossible for somebody not named Lou Shirtliff to get elected as a Democrat in Weber. So when you did that, I was um, elated. And Thank I imagine you. Thank you. for you, like, I mean, just going into that at the beginning of it and not having done it, like, what was it like as you started to face the prospect of that kind of campaign? Well, the thing about it is, is that um, one advantage that I had and Representative Shirtliff had is that we have spent our careers talking with people in this area. Lou, during her career as an educator, me in the healthcare space. And for both of us, I think what was important is that when you're educating or rendering health care, that is actually outside, that transcends politics. And so people knew both of us outside of the traditional polarized sphere of Democrat, Republican, all of that, and they knew us as people. Mm. And I think that that's um, one of the things that was really important is is being known as a person and uh, not so much under the moniker of Democrat or Republican. And Lou certainly had um, many people who supported her who had never supported a Democrat before because they respected her place in the community, not only in teaching, but even after Lou retired, she was constantly involved in the community in so many different ways, and that's how she earned the respect. It wasn't a turnkey thing that just happened when she sought election as a Democratic representative. It was a groundwork laid decades Never really, I suspect she never, when she started her education career, she never really thought, oh, my end goal will be in the legislature. Mine neither. But that advocacy that she had for her students and I had for my patients translated into advocacy for the group that we represent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's just talk for a minute about the upcoming session. Are there things that you're watching for, planning for as the session starts in about a month? Oh, golly. Well, right now I am working primarily on getting my bills lined up and squared away. Um, I've got several bills that have already received consensus endorsement from um, our interim committees. We meet all through the year in these interim committees. That's something that most people don't understand is going on behind the scenes. From May to November, we have these interim committees that we vet oftentimes more complicated topics. And um, so I have a a few bills that I'm getting going as far as that goes. And then also as part of leadership of the Minority Caucus, we're trying to get our policy pillars publicized of what we believe are important policies for the state of Utah going forward. This week, we will be receiving the governor's budget, so we'll be seeing how Governor Cox is prioritizing spending in our $29 billion state budget. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow, I will be receiving the briefing from the governor, again, as part of the leadership team, 
to see what priorities the governor has for Utah going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those are the things that I'm doing before January 16th rolls around. <laughs> wow. But I'm also launching my campaign. Right. And so we'll be launching on the 7th of December um, at the Monarch uh, in the evening, 6 to 8. And if your watchers want to come by, um, because we'll be rolling that out because filing for re-election this year happens January 2nd to the 8th. So that wow. will be before the session even begins. Yeah, it used to be after the session was yes, over. Yes, yeah. I, I, I prefer after the session. <laughs> I am focused on doing the job as a legislator. Uh-huh. And I think that this early filing is not great for the process. However, this is what was what happened. And so, you know, rather than battering my head against the wall and saying, I don't like this, which I don't, <laughs> you have to flex to the situation at hand. And so we're going to have a campaign launch on December 7th and start um, gathering the momentum that we need to uh, allow me to return to the legislature in 2025 so that I can continue this process that I started in 2021. Uh, I can't. That two-year election cycle, you basically have the legislative session where you're feeling relief that you just won, and then the next one where you're feeling pressure yes. to have yes. a new campaign. Yes. And like, does that leave time to govern? Is that schedule healthy? Right. It, it is not healthy. I, <laughs> I don't like that. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, of course, this is even true for our congressional delegation. I mean, our House of Rep- our National House of Representatives is a two-year cycle. You know, poor Blake Moore, you know, he also is on this two-year thing where he's trying to get things done. And let's face it, they've not done a particularly great job of getting things done with all of the infighting and things like that. And yet he is trying to persist in in doing this, recognizing that there will be undoubtedly primary opponents for him as well. Mm-hmm. I would much prefer a four-year cycle because I think that we could um, actually be more effective. And some state legislatures are four years for their House of Representatives. Well, and I never realized how that early filing period would mean that they're going to just be shouting criticism through the whole legislative session. I I agree. And you know, the thing about it is, is that um, my mantra through all this is to thine own self be true. Uh And so when I am in that session, I am going to be focusing on policy to advance our state and our region and the funding uh, priorities so that we can go forward. And I am going to put the campaign on the back burner until the 2nd of March (laughs) and, um, you know, try try to do that because, you know, people elect us to do a job. And I think that if the campaign process influences how you do the job, that's not true to what the people elected me to do. Mm. So I am going to be wearing my legislator hat, and um, that is what I will be focusing on for those 45 days and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much. For You're, welcome. Really You're welcome. You're welcome. Hey, before you go, there's a local Christmas song. It's going to be released any day now. It's called Our House to Yours. It's a collaboration of a few past guests, including Club Mungo, I Am Azen, Dennis and Josh from Sun Tea. There isn't much time before Christmas to spread the word, so, you know, listen to it a few times. Bump it from your car window. Play it at parties. Request it at Neptune Skating. Um, also, you know, thank you as always for listening. I also want to thank Deanne at the Ogdenite uh, for all of the advice that she gives me. She's also great at helping to connect people all over town. If you're looking for something to do, make sure you're checking out the Ogdenites goings on in O-Town. And uh, that's it. Have a great week.